do indeed give you praise and thanksgiving for sending your son to pay our debt that we could never hope to repay and for in turn gifting us with all that he earned, giving us new life. I pray now that because your spirit is with us, your word is present, that you would speak into our ears and to our hearts, that we would be renewed again by the power of your spirit and the preaching of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and take a seat, gang. And thanks for coming out tonight again to, uh, to Epiphany. Uh, if you've been coming here for any length of time, uh, and even if you haven't, maybe you've only been here a couple times, or maybe it's your first time, you will know very quickly, or you already do know, that the word forgiveness is said a lot around here. It's just part of the weekly vocabulary at Epiphany. We begin our service by confessing our sin. And what do I do? I declare to you that you are forgiven. When we sing songs, we rejoice in the fact that God has forgiven us, as we literally just did with basically all three songs. And when we take communion, we hear the words, This is my body and blood, given why? For the forgiveness of your sins. And then you can pretty well be rest assured that when I get up here and I start preaching at you all, yes, once again, you're going to hear about the forgiveness of sins. It's just part of the vocabulary of the Christian faith. Maybe the center of the Christian faith. But as much as we may rejoice in the concept of forgiveness for us here at Epiphany, and I hope throughout all of God's church, that's true. I mean, I'm even wearing a shirt that is called by the artist who made it, Forgive by Other. As much as we may rejoice in the idea of forgiveness being extended for us, it's a lot more challenging concept to talk about forgiveness being extended by us. That is a whole different thing. Of course, I mean, it's easy for me to stand up here and tell you to be a forgiving person, to be forgiving people, but the rubber really meets the road if, like, I mean, what if you're the victim in an ongoing abusive relationship and you hear me, the preacher, stand up here and say, just forgive, just forgive, be forgiving, turn the other cheek. Or what if you're, what if, heaven forbid, you're a victim of, of rape or or you have a family member that has been killed in an unjust way. What if, what if you're a Holocaust survivor? It's easy for me to say forgive. Much more difficult to put it in practice. Simon Wiesenthal once wrote a book called The Sunflower, wrestling with such issues. In case you don't know, who he is, he is himself a Holocaust survivor and went on to become an impassioned advocate against anti-Semitism and really racism of any kind. He's a real hero. Uh, went on to start a number of um, museums of tolerance and that sort of thing. Just a really great, great man. And, uh, but in this novel, The Sunflower, it's sort of based on his real life, but a little imaginary. 
Uh, he pictures himself imprisoned in a concentration camp, young man, and he's sent to work in a, uh, in a German hospital. Upon his arrival, he is, he is whisked to uh, the bedside of a dying SS soldier who wishes to unburden his conscience by confessing to all the atrocities he's committed during the war. The SS man does not seem to really care about the identity of his listener. Apparently, any Jewish person will do for him. Nevertheless, Wiesenthal feels morally compelled to listen to the Nazi detail how he and his fellow soldiers rounded up women and children in a house and set it on fire. And anyone who was caught trying to escape, they shot. In his confession, writes Wiesenthal, there was true repentance, even though he did not admit in so many words, nor was it necessary for the way he spoke and the fact that he spoke to me was certainly proof of his repentance. And so the question comes, what would Wiesenthal do? What, what would you do? After several hours, Wiesenthal listened to the man in his complete confession. And then he walked out of the room without ever uttering a word, refusing to forgive the soldier. Honestly, when I hear this, I'm torn. Because, of course, as a Christian, I've been taught my whole life, forgive, forgive, forgive. This is what you are to do. It's an ethical imperative for us as Christians. It's just part of what it means. And yet, do I understand completely why Wiesenthal wouldn't want to? And why he even feel justified in not doing so? I do. And that's the tension. That's the tension that the concept of extending forgiveness to others brings up for us. And so, with that by way of introduction, we're going to begin looking at our passage tonight, probably quite well known to many of you, that is really all about forgiveness. And, well, first of all, how often we are to forgive. That's the first thing that's covered. Look at Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Peter's question is clear. How often do I need to forgive? Now, it's important to note the context of this question. If you remember from last week, right before this question of his, Jesus had just instructed his disciples about how to deal with a, a discipline of brother who's gone astray. And what he says in the passage is, First of all, go to your brother who's gone astray, confront him with the way that he sinned against you, and if he repents, he says, you've won your brother over. In other words, you extend forgiveness to that person if they repent. Well, you can picture Peter and the disciples sort of mulling over what they've heard. I mean, this passage we're reading today comes right on the heels of that one. There's no break that we know of. And you can picture them thinking, okay, well, what is how often though? Okay, so I get, I get what you're saying. I need to confront someone who's done me wrong. And if they admit it and confess it, I need to forgive them. Okay, I gotcha. 
but uh, what if they do it again? And again, and again, and again. Now Peter knows that Jesus is all about that grace, you know, he's all about that mercy. And so Peter, I think, goes above and beyond, above and beyond to try and show that he's on the same wavelength as Jesus. He says, seven times. That, that would have seemed to Peter and the disciples a ridiculously high suggestion. Now why do I say that? Well, because we know in a Jewish tradition at the time, the rule was typically you forgave someone three times for doing you wrong. It's sort of the three-strike rule. That was the tradition. You know, it's the idea, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me once, shame on me. But Peter, knowing Jesus is all about that mercy, says, I'm even willing to go seven, Lord. Is that enough? See, I'm on your wavelength. I'm gracious too. And what is Jesus' response in verse 22? I do not say to you seven times, but seventy Seven times. Why on earth did Jesus choose that number? Was he just trying to be hyperbolic to make a point? That could be, maybe. But actually, I think there is some, some, there's some reason to this. There's some logic to his choice of 77. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, verse 24, right near the beginning of the Bible, you'll meet a man named Lemek. And Lemech is known basically for one thing, not much, and that is boasting about being extremely vengeful. There's a little almost poem that he writes that's recorded in Genesis 4.24 in which he says, get this, my revenge will be 77-fold. So as God will say in his law later, Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, you know, make sure it's just and equitable. No, no, no. Lemek is a man of great vengeance, and he wants the world to know it. And he boasts about it. You hit me, I'm going to shoot you. You harm one of my own, I'll kill your whole family. That's the idea. You don't want to mess with me. My vengeance is unstoppable. It's unreasonably stronger than whatever harm you may do. Now you see what Jesus is doing by using that same number. But in the opposite way. Our forgiveness should be so unreasonably stronger than whatever harm we may have received. Thus, this number is not necessarily meant to be taken literally. As a matter of fact, in Greek, you could actually translate what Jesus says not merely 77, but actually 70 times 7. And the idea behind that, if it's 70 times 7, is not Jesus saying 490 times you forgive someone who does you wrong, but that 491st, you clock them. That's not the idea. So don't be counting your brother's sins against you and be like, 483, pal, seven more and you're getting it. It's not this, that's not the point. The point here is it should be endless. It should be always. It should be ongoing forgiveness. Well, okay, clear enough, fine, thank you very much. But obviously, we have to stop and deal with some objections that might come up in our skull, in our brain as we hear this, because obviously this causes a bit of a dilemma for us. I mean, 
if, if you're in that abusive relationship, if you're being taken for granted, does that mean you just continue to be taken for granted? Does that mean you continue to be abused? Does that mean you continue to let people just walk all over you? Well, no. No, it doesn't. Because number one, I, I, this is a, just a couple of clarifications you need to have. Forgiveness is not the same thing as having no boundaries. Yes, we are to have a spirit of forgiveness at all times, but this does not mean not having boundaries. Oftentimes we hear forgive and we associate it with having to simply accept horrible situations or people taking advantage of us. No, that's not what it means. It is entirely possible and sometimes very necessary to forgive someone of the wrong they've committed against you while marking out healthy boundaries so that they are not allowed to keep on hurting you. I mean, Jesus says to turn the other cheek. That doesn't mean you just stand there and keep on letting yourself be punched. Flee. Turn the other cheek and run away. You don't just keep taking the beating. So we forgiveness does not mean lack of boundaries. That's the first clarification about this. The second clarification is dealing with a phrase that we've all heard, forgive and forget. We have tended to associate forgiveness with being able to forget what's been done to us. But I'm here to tell you, that is not in particular what the Bible says about forgiveness. God is capable of taking your sins and throwing them as far as the east is from the west and forgetting them. True. God's forgiveness is like that. But never are we told specifically that we must, in order to forgive, forget what people have done to us. And I think sometimes people are really held back from being able to forgive because they think, I can never forget what was done to me. Well, you might not ever forget. That does not mean you cannot extend forgiveness. You might never forget some of the things that have been done to you, some of the harm that's been done to you, some of the pain that's been caused to you. Maybe God in His grace one day will take it away, but that doesn't become an excuse if you can't forget to not forgive. So with those clarifications, I mean, you do get the spirit of Jesus' answer to Peter here, and the answer is, how often are Christians called to forgive one another and to forgive others? It's Christians. Always. Always. Does that mean it will happen instantly? Not necessarily. Does that mean it will be easy? No. In fact, to forgive, to some extent, will always feel a little bit like death. Because when you forgive, you are choosing to absorb a wrong done to you rather than to give it back. You are choosing to absorb the pain. Okay, so with that established, let's look at why we should extend forgiveness then. Talk about how often, why is it that we should extend it? And for that, let's dig into what Jesus says next in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, in today's money, that equals up to about $6 billion. Verse 25. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, 
Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. We'll stop there for a second. The reason why Christians of all people on planet Earth should be marked by extending radical forgiveness to others is because like the master in the parable Jesus is telling here, God our master has extended radical forgiveness to us. Make no mistake, my friends, make no mistake, each and every one of you sitting here tonight or watching at home or wherever you are, owed a debt that you could never begin to even think about paying off in the eternal courts of heaven. Because you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, if God were to bring you before the standard of his judgment and declare to you that you must, must right all the wrongs you ever thought, said, and done, you would be doomed. Just like the man in our parable, all of us, when confronted with the size of the debt we owe, must be brought to a place where we can all cry, all we can do is cry out for mercy. And the good news is, for you and I, on account of Christ's life, death, and resurrection done in payment for our debt, God declares to you tonight that you are forgiven of that debt. That he has wiped the slate clean and even declared you to be righteous, rich with all that you need, with righteousness before the throne of God, so that in Christ you are set free. We don't extend forgiveness because the other person is inherently worthy of forgiveness. No, 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 no. That's wrong. No, we forgive. We forgive because we have been recipients of such lavish grace ourselves. That's the way this game works. I can't help but think of the story of Zacchaeus. Some of you, if you grew up in Sunday school, maybe you heard about the wee wee little man, Zacchaeus, who had to come up in a tree to see Jesus as Jesus was coming through Jericho because he was too short to see above the crowds. And uh, of course, Zacchaeus was a bad dude. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, which means that he was sort of the extortioner over the extortioners. I mean, he was for lack of a better term, I mean, it was like he was the, you know, the head of the mob. And of all the people in Jericho, of all the people that Jesus wants to hang out with, it's Zacchaeus. And he comes to Zacchaeus and says, Zacchaeus, I want to, I have come to spend the night in your home. In other words, he's extended grace to a man who does not deserve it at all. And the crowd even recognizes this. They were told they grumble. At the reality that Jesus would go with Zacchaeus into his filthy home where he's done so much sinning and extortion. And what happens? What is the response of Zacchaeus to be extended such grace by God? He says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Do you see it? I mean, it is in the light of receiving forgiveness and knowing we receive forgiveness, that we're empowered to then give to others. Well, I wish I could say that's what happens for us in our story today. But alas, what we end up seeing is, well, 
why one is prone to not extend forgiveness. Verse 28 through the rest of the passage. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. There's a little bit of money. Not nearly comparable to what he'd been forgiven of. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience me, with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgive you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him over to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What on earth is going on here? This man had been extended so much grace that it's hard to believe he could be so unmerciful to his fellow servant. And the question comes up, why didn't him receiving such grace actually bring about change in him? Why, why didn't it make him extend forgiveness? Well, I think if we look carefully at our text, I think we find there's some good reasons for why such forgiveness didn't change him. First of all, he didn't extend the same kind of forgiveness that was granted to him because in reality, he still thinks and walks around believing the world owes him something. And because of this, he is filled with bitterness. Anne Lamott once wrote, not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and waiting for the other person to die. Refusing to forgive is like drinking rat poison and waiting for the other person to die. It fills us with a spiritual poison like the man displays in our text. I'll just tell you very practically one surefire way to block the impact of God's radical forgiveness in your life is to allow the mentality of the world owes me something or reverse of that, the world's always screwing me over. It doesn't take much of that. Allowing that to fester before the impact of God's radical grace to you is blunted. And thus it is possible to gather at church on a regular basis to hear the constant declarations of forgiveness pronounced here week after week and not be changed by it if this mentality is allowed to persist. It may in fact sometimes be the case that somebody literally does owe you something. That's true. That happens. But the only way that you can avoid being consumed by what is owed to you is to generally know and recognize how much you yourself were in dire need of forgiveness from God. And there's a hint in our text that we have to go back to verse 26 for that shows us this man really never saw he was in need as much as he was. 
When the servant was told he would be put in jail for his debt, what he says, I think, is very revealing. He says, quote, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Notice he does not say, Have mercy on me. Notice he does not say, I can't ever pay that back, I'm sorry. Now deep down, when confronted with his massive debt before the face of his master, he still believes somehow, some way that he could have paid off that debt himself if he was just given a little more time. And somewhere deep down, the man believes he doesn't really need such forgiveness. If you really want to know the reason why we at times don't extend grace to others, it's because in those times we fool ourselves into thinking the same thing. We think, yeah, yeah, sure, okay, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not like them. Sure, my imperfections may have racked up some debt, yeah, in the heavenly bank or whatever, yes, yes, but give me enough time and I'll take care of it. I'll make up for the bad with some more good. I'll do some good deeds. I'll volunteer at the food bank and God will see it and rack it up and even it out and eventually my good will even outweigh my bad. When we refuse to forgive, when we've been forgiven so much, essentially that's what we are saying. We are saying, I am more worthy of forgiveness than you are. And that is precisely why the master is so offended in the end. Praise God, that is not you. You have been forgiven a massive debt. You have been declared righteous on account of Christ. So if you're struggling to forgive someone, if you have somebody that's been in your mind throughout this sermon that you've been thinking of, or someone who's, who you're embittered uh, at for doing wrong to you, God knows your struggle. Repent. Turn to God. He's not surprised by it. Confess to God. He hasn't rejected you. Acknowledge the enormity of your own debt. Of your own sin before God. And acknowledge even still the enormity of the forgiveness that he's won for you on the cross through Jesus Christ. Be steeped in that reality. Never stop dwelling on it and ask the Holy Spirit to give you the power to extend that same sort of forgiveness to others. And who knows, maybe, maybe, just maybe, you'll be able to do something like, like Dorothy Holloway. In 1999, her son Brian was gunned down by a man named James Murphy. From 1999 to 2014, she lived, very understandably, with bitterness, holding a deep grudge in her heart towards the man who had taken away her boy and hurt her family so much. But internally, of course, Dorothy said the grudge she was holding on to was keeping her locked up in a, in a cloud of darkness. And so... And so eventually, Dorothy, inspired by the forgiveness that she had received through Jesus Christ, 
decided to write a letter to the killer, James Murphy, letting him know that she had decided to forgive him. Well, soon Murphy wrote back, amazed at her grace to him, and then she wrote back again, and then he wrote back again. And pretty soon, pretty soon, Dorothy Holloway, this mother who had lost her son at the hands of James Murphy, pretty soon she was driving out to visit James Murphy every couple of weeks. The letters continued to be exchanged, but as time went on, something changed in the letters. James no longer addressed her as Miss Holloway, but as Mama. Indeed, through the power of forgiveness, the relationship went, went from one of pure enmity to even family. That's what God has done in Christ for you, church. He has made you a part of his family. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, my prayer is that he'll work in me and you to be able to do the same with those who wrong us in the world around us and even in the midst of us. May it be so. Amen. Father, we pray that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, inspire us to be people of radical forgiveness, not just who receive radical forgiveness, but who give out radical forgiveness. Oh, how much our world needs forgiveness right now. No one wants to do it. Everyone's looking for justice. Everyone's looking for their rights to be met. Oh, understandably, but oh, it never will end. The cycle will continue unless forgiveness breaks through. Use us, your church, to be that beacon of light in the darkness. We pray this in Jesus' name. He taught us to pray with one voice. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.